I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard DiNardo, author of Turning Points, the Eastern Front in 1915, published by Prager, uh, February 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, my pleasure. So first, uh, tell me, how did you get into uh, studying this subject and writing on it? Uh, well, this is my um, this is my ninth book on the military history, mm-hmm. and most of the publications are on German military history. And so, in the early part of my career, I focused mainly on World War II, and then I did a book. Uh, I wrote a book on Germany and coalition warfare in World War II, and the initial part of the of the first chapter of the book uh, had to involve, you know, obviously, Germany, Germany's experience in coalition warfare in World War One, And so uh, uh, that sort of drew my attention to what had been a very underserved subject uh, in uh, in World War One historiography, namely uh, the Eastern Front, and in particular the campaigns of a, of a general uh, by the name of August von Mackensen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he was uh, he was one half of perhaps the second most famous military marriage in uh, German military history in World War One, behind that of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, mm-hmm. uh, namely uh, uh, Mackensen and his collaboration, uh, which was not for the entire war for, for uh, I guess about a year year and a half uh, with uh, Hans von Zeigt, who uh, most people will know will recognize as the head of the post-war Truppenamt uh, in, the, in the early Weimar period. Okay. And so I, I did a book uh, on the campaign in Galicia, a breakthrough, uh, and then uh, and that was published in 2010. Mm-hmm. And then 2015, I came out with a book on the invasion of Serbia, which was um, another uh, campaign engineered by Mackensen and Zeke called invasion and then uh there was still a lot of things out there on the eastern front that were of interest for example uh second Missourian lakes very interesting battle uh the whole period in the in the uh in the early in late summer early fall of 1915 when uh hindenburg and ludendorff make their big effort to try and encircle the, Ru- the russian west front and it comes a cropper uh, yeah, a whole raft of other of, of other things. So, I decided to do the entirety of the Eastern Front for the entirety of 1915. A very very interesting year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that leads to a question I was going to ask, which is why you picked um, that time frame. Is it just basically that's because it's the beginning, or because that time frame was of particular importance compared to all of um, what happened in the Eastern Front? Well, arguably, it's the most mobile uh, year in the war uh, uh, when the forces were still relatively evenly matched. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Brusilov offensive in 1916 makes some gains, but they're not, you know, in terms of territory, they're not, they're not, you know, what you would call major mm-hmm. compared to, let's say, 1915 when the Russians get run completely out of Poland and they're almost uh, cast out of. Um, and they lose almost all of their gains that they had made against Austria in the first year of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then once uh, Bruce Silov's offensive stalls and Romania switches sides, then the then the, the focus of the action 
shifts down to Romania, which in itself is a very interesting campaign. There have been some some pretty pretty good books about that mm-hmm. uh, and articles about uh, about that. And uh, 1917, you know, once the revolution occurs, the Russian army is you know falling apart at the seams. So mm-hmm. even though the Germans are able to occupy large swaths of territory, it's not quite the same as 1915. Mm-hmm. How do you? Uh choose what to focus on in the book um there's a lot of material obviously um how do you how do you break it down what's your um what sort of themes do you explore it, it's it's called turning points for a reason because there there are uh, a series of interesting turning points in the war where the war swung back decided in, in a in a decidedly different direction than it had been before uh so obviously uh the first is the uh uh, the Carpathian Winter War and the uh, the fall of of Shermissel. Uh, I'm sure the pronunciation uh, uh, zealots will will <laughs> will crucify me on that. And the fall of that critical fortress, which really uh, produced a, a serious crisis uh, for the Austro-Hungarian AOK, uh, and uh, probably uh, resulted in the period of closest collaboration between the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans in the war. As, as, one, as one German author put it, it was, Gorlis Tarnoff uh, was, was, quote, their finest hour hmm. <laughs> in terms of coalition warfare. So could you tell me, um, so I noticed, I think in the book blurb, um, it implied or maybe it said directly that the Russians sort of didn't plan the campaign properly, that they misjudged where the enemy concentrations might be or, or what they had to focus on. Um, could you address that? And also, if you could touch on what, what sort of, um, what was the Russian army like at this point, you know, as far as makeup and the kind of weapons and operationally, how did they, um, did they conduct themselves? Well, uh, I think the, uh, the Russian army does a little bit better than people would give it credit for. Uh, and certainly, uh, for example, uh, uh, like at, uh, at Gorlitsa when, uh, the, uh, in, in Mackensen's initial attack, where the Germans did not have overwhelming artillery superiority, and the Russian forces were reasonably well equipped with things like machine guns, their artillery was going to be weak owing to things like shell shortages, although that's a little overblown. Uh, they could give the Germans a bloody nose. Uh, likewise, their performance at Second Assyrian Lakes was uh, was by and large uh, not uh, not bad, and then they followed that up immediately with uh, actually uh, a victory over the Germans at Prajnish, which resulted in the in the taking of prisoner result, results vary, but uh, I think the low number I've seen was like seventeen thousand German prisoners, something hmm. you know we don't often think about. Mm-hmm. And then likewise, uh, they're they're winning the uh, ultimately ultimate victory in the Carpathian Winter War defeating all of Conrad von Herzendorf's attempts to break through to the besieged uh, fortress of Schermissel uh, and its fall, which is what caused the crisis. Uh, so the Russians tactically could do some good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their cavalry was, was fairly skilled, as, the, uh, as the, they found out. Operationally, uh, the, um, they couldn't move very quickly, but when they could move, in an operational sense, shifting units, that kind of thing. That's what enabled them to really uh, bring uh, Ludendorff and Hindenburg's efforts to encircle the, Ru- the Russian West Front 
uh, to grief in September of uh, of 1915. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, they were able to transfer an army, essentially by rail, uh, to the spot where a German cavalry penetration had threatened the Russian main supply route. And uh, basically, once the new Second Army was established, it was facing against the, the German 1st Cavalry Division. There was no contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, the, uh, once the Russians launched the a properly coordinated attack supported by artillery. They just crushed the uh, the cavalry. Was there much trench warfare on that on the Eastern Front? Yeah, in periods. Uh, it was it, nothing like the nothing like the Western Front where you had these like deep belts of of, of you know fortified positions uh, with second and third lines that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, there were long periods. Uh, for example, during the uh, uh, during the late winter and uh, once the second Missourian Lakes fighting had died down, where there was a lot of patrolling, there's a lot of trench warfare. Uh, you have raids, uh, you know, all this, all this, all this kind of stuff uh, that uh, that goes on. If you uh, if you read uh, German regimental histories, you get a lot of a lot of sense of that. Um, how about the use of um, aircraft or uh, poison gas? On the eastern front. Uh, poison gas was used uh, first on the on the eastern front in January of 1915 mm-hmm. at an attack at a place called Bolimov, uh, and it was used by Mackensen, then commanding the Ninth Army, uh, and it was a choking agent called I think it's pronounced sisal bromide, and it proved to be unsuccessful because the the weather conditions were not very suitable. Mm-hmm. For it, uh, it was it was very cold, so the so the gas tended to cling to the ground. Did cause some casualties, and what was interesting, the Russians never informed the Allies hmm. uh, that the Germans were now using uh, poison gas. The uh, uh, the business about the aircraft was really critical, because basically uh, both sides used uh, used aircraft for reconnaissance. And by 1915, I think the Germans had become quite good at things like aerial reconnaissance and everything that goes with it, uh, to include, you know, photographic, photographic interpretation, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, they were, uh, big believers in, uh, uh, in that. So certainly Machen and Zaytor. As were Hindenburg and Ludendorff, uh, uh, aviation had already played a critical part in Tannenberg. In August of 1914, and Hindenburg said, uh, "Without uh, without pilots, there there's no Tannenberg, because hmm. uh, they gave them the, the the critical information on the movement of the uh, of the Russian uh, the Russian Second Army." Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so actually, uh, we are very fortunate uh, in the Bavarian archives. Uh, I was able to find uh, an order for aerial reconnaissance. Uh, during the uh, prepare, while well, the uh, the 11th Army is preparing for its push mm-hmm. uh, to recapture Lemberg, and so the uh, uh, the Germans sort of divided it into, if you will, uh, close reconnaissance, which was I guess within about five miles of the front, mm-hmm. and then deep reconnaissance, which is beyond that. And uh, the idea was they they provided Machen and Zait with uh, uh, with uh, lots of detail about the movements of Russian reserves, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and then uh, uh, what was very interesting was the fact that uh, basically when the uh, the pilots returned, uh, 
with their reports, they were to be written up and distributed into 10 copies, which would then be distributed to, to subordinate units. I'm speaking with Richard DiNardo, author of Turning Points. You can find more of his books by Googling his name or looking for his books on Amazon. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Twitter and Facebook at warscholar, and on Instagram at chrisalvarezwarscholar. If you like sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business technology and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Did the Russians have much of uh, an air force? Uh, not much. They used mainly, uh, they used like uh, French machines mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did have some of their own aircraft, most notably the uh, Ilya Muromets bomber, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was very big and could carry a lot of bombs, but it, it did require like really robust basing facilities, which meant that its employment was kind of confined to a few air bases in the Warsaw area. Mm-hmm. And once they fell... Uh, you you had uh, difficulties with that, but uh, yeah, the Rush the Russians uh, did have reconnaissance machines as well, uh, which did provide uh, critical information to uh, uh, to both uh, front and uh, commanders as well as to uh, to uh, Stavka. Can you talk about uh, the terrain and and the type of weather the forces were dealing with um, in these the regions where they fought? Well, in 1915, it varies considerably. Uh, basically, in the northern part of the front, uh, where, uh, you know, for example, you're talking about what today would be called the Baltic states mm-hmm. uh, and the, 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 uh, the pre-war Russo-German border, uh, you have very swampy areas, heavily forested. Uh, the, the weather was, was, well, I'll talk about the weather in a minute. Uh, and then Poland, of course, is relatively flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not a lot of uh, features. And then once you get into, into Galicia, which is southern Poland, uh, and extending into, into Ukraine and, um, and so on, it gets, uh, you know, with the Carpathians, it's a very mountainous, uh, with relatively few passes. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's literally, you, you could look at casualty lists and you'd see so and so, you know, wounded on such a date and then eaten by wolves. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, a pretty wild, uh, pretty wild place. Wow. Uh, and uh, I would, I would call your attention to uh, to Jack Tunstall's book, Blood on the Snow, which hmm. is a a very detailed uh, study of the uh, of the Carpathian Winter War. Hmm. The weather throughout was was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, particularly like for example when Conrad launched his first. Carpathian winter offensive, the temperature was uh, like 26 degrees below zero centigrade, uh, which is uh, about, uh, I think, something like somewhere like, like three, four, four degrees below zero, uh, and with, a, with a, a serious snowstorm involved, you know, troops having to wade through like chest-high snow. And actually, uh, on the northern part of the front, during Second Missourian Lakes, the weather was uniformly awful. 
the attack starts off accompanied by, as one corps commander put it, a furious snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very interesting, uh, you know, German soldiers for camouflage, since they were still operating on Prussian territory, were using every bed sheet and tablecloth from every restaurant and hotel <laughs> they could lay their hands on mm-hmm. uh, for for camouflage. Huh. And the uh, the weather was again it was uh, largely near or or in some cases below zero Fahrenheit and so a lot of times what you you had to get around by by sled mm-hmm. and it, it, I, I've seen pictures of uh, of horses towing broken down automobiles which is which is kind of interesting. Does it get very hot during the su- or did it get very hot during the summer? Yes. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, Russia is a that part of the world is a land of climatic extremes. We uh, we're all familiar with how cold, uh, for example, uh, winters can be in that area. Mm-hmm. Well, summers can be pretty hot too. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, you get into July, August, things get pretty uh, pretty warm. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know that that that's something we don't think about, and the impact that that has, for example, on uh, on horses, as, as does winter. So therefore, like periods of trench warfare were actually welcomed by the troops because, for example, that meant you could actually you had a chance to kind of give your horses some rest and, uh, you know, proper care, feeding, uh, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, you know, which is very difficult to do during, uh, let's say, active operations. Did either side have um, any major uh, supply issues? In 1915, either uh, food, water, or um, armaments and, and that sort of thing? Well, by the time you get to, um, uh, basically, armies had what you would call a, a, a range limit, an operational range limit. Uh, once you got to about 80 miles uh, from your railhead, you had to stop hmm. until the railroad could be brought forward. Mm-hmm. And then you could you could start restocking. The biggest item, of course, was artillery ammunition because it's it's very bulky. Mm-hmm. Uh, although uh, you know being able at times to uh, to supply fodder for horses was uh, was also could also be problematic. Mm-hmm. But generally, in that regard, the, the Germans were much better served by the fact that th- their rail system was was much better served. Uh, with the Russians, there was some confusion over authority especially in the occupied areas of, of Austria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Russians made no real effort to overcome the gauge barrier. Hmm. Um, Russian rail railways ran on a, uh, I think, a five-foot gauge. You know, in Germany, Austria, Hungary used the standard European gauge, which is four feet, eight and a half inches. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that generally um, they each side tried to capture... Uh, the railroad to the other side rather than destroy them because they could use them themselves. Is that correct? Yeah, well, well, first of all, the, uh, you, would, you, you would try and capture railroads, uh, and then and then obviously you'd have, to, you'd have to relay the tracks to be able to, you know, to, to, your, to your gauge, unless you, ca- you were fortunate to capture a large amount of rolling stock, mm-hmm. which was uh, rarely the case. So, uh, so basically, the uh, the German uh, railway uh, uh, section of the general staff uh, was heavily involved in these sorts of things, uh, and and that that's a very labor intensive business. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it requires a lot of people to, you know, to actually uh, pick up and, and relay uh, relay rails mm-hmm. and so on. So, so you wouldn't necessarily destroy the tracks because you know you, they'd be you know used in the future. Did either side um, were they using their troops for um, this sort of thing, or was there a lot of use of civilian labor on either side? Uh, they used troops. Uh, I know, for example, there was in the run up to the invasion of Serbia. The original commander of the Hungarian, uh, the Austro-Hungarian army that was going to be involved in the campaign, which was, if I remember correctly, the third, was essentially uh, re- you know replaced uh, because he had run afoul of uh, regulations concerning the use of civilian labor or something like that for you know military purposes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what was uh, what was interesting was uh, although this has not been adequately researched, it's a it's a good question to ask whether or not prisoners were used in that kind of thing as well. Because I, I know, for example, that again for the invasion of Serbia, each of the divisions of the of the Russian forces that were being pulled from the Russian front for the invasion of Serbia, like Robert Tosh's Tenth uh, Corps, mm-hmm. had two hundred Russian prisoners assigned to each division as Teamsters hmm. to drive wagons. Okay. That's interesting. That's depending a lot on um, enemy prisoners of war. Yeah, and of course both sides uh, tried to, to raise units from disaffected ethnic minorities. Hmm. Okay. People just switching sides because they didn't like who they were fighting for. Yeah, I mean, obviously the um, uh, there, were, there were several instances uh, where, where Czech regiments... Uh, shall we say, behaved badly, uh, surrendering to the Russians, and then the Russians were able to raise a Czech legion, which became a very interesting element in the anti-Bolshevik forces during the during the Civil War. Hmm. How about um, motor transport? Um, how much did each side have and, and depend on that? Uh, not a great deal. Uh, uh, part of the part of the problem is that the uh, uh, not a lot of uh, of roads for uh, for use, mm-hmm. uh, and so motorized transport was really kind of limited to to heavier items. For example, like heavy guns, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They required you know motorized transport to to bring forward. But other than that, uh, not a great you know the horses remain the uh, and would remain mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the principal mode of transport, certainly in the German army. Even in, even through the second Second World War, uh, most people don't realize that seventy percent of the German army's transport in the Second World War was horse drawn. So uh, I guess for in 1915, then most of the troops basically might have taken the railroad close to the front and then marched their way to the front and then exactly they were just right. On foot. And 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 usually uh, during periods when they were assembling for an offensive, for example, like Gorlice Tarnoff. Uh, they would only move at night to try and and, and then lay up during the day mm-hmm. uh, to keep away from the prying eyes of uh, the occasional Russian reconnaissance aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, uh, in, the, in the case of the Germans, like a place like Gorlitsa, uh, when officers went forward to do like ground reconnaissance for their you know for the for the coming attack, they would wear Austrian uniforms. Uh, or at least maybe like Austrian caps, because you know the, the pickle halb was a was a dead giveaway. Yeah, 
So I think the book also mentioned, or the blurb, the description said you also go into um, some naval issues. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of fell out because of uh, of uh, contract uh, uh, limitations. I, I I'm limited to like a a hundred thousand words, which I I violated. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously there there were some issues that some things that had to fall out, and, and regrettably, telling the naval story mm-hmm. uh, was one of them. Okay. Uh, because there is a lot of interesting stuff, and, and again, that that's a subject worthy of exploration because beyond the German official history and maybe one or two things in German, there might be something out there in Russian. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's part of a of a very good book by James Goldrick uh, called Before Jutland, mm-hmm. which looks at the naval war in European waters up to Jutland. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, he does have a section in there on what, what's going on in the Baltic. There's, there's not a whole lot written about it. Uh, the German Navy did support things like the German Army's advance in the port of Liebau, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and so on. And, and there was a uh, you know some some naval action between light units. There's a lot of mining going on, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, regrettably, I, I simply just did not have the space to to give the uh, the coverage uh, that I would have liked to uh, to naval matters. So uh, earlier you had uh, mentioned some lakes, so I'm curious about how much did uh, um, rivers and other waterways um, affect what was going on there in 1915? Well, uh, in terms of waterways, now it's very interesting. If you're dealing with, let's say, the early part of the campaign, 1915, you're dealing with some key rivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the Sand River. Uh, another one, of course, is the Vistula. Uh, and then uh, for the uh, on the northern part of the front, you're dealing with a couple of very swampy watercourses, uh, the Neiman River and the Narrow uh, the Naru River. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, once you get through Poland, you reach the, the Boog, which runs roughly north south. And then beyond the Boog, that marks the eastern edge of the Pripet Marshes, mm-hmm. uh, which is which are really then then clearly divides the front into a northern front and a southern front with the marshes in between, mm-hmm. which is centered around the Pripyat River, which is this very kind of sluggish uh, waterway surrounded by this enormous swamp with, uh, you know, with, with very, very few trails, roads of any kind. Mm-hmm. And that would remain a key planning factor uh, in both world wars. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's turn uh, to the resources you used for your research. You mentioned, um, I guess, the archives at, in Bavaria. I believe you mentioned that. Uh, what other ar- archives and information did you uh, did you gather? Well, let's see. The, uh, the each one serves a, a separate purpose. I used uh, the Bavarian archives are very very uh, useful because a lot of German military records from the imperial period did not survive the Second World War. Hmm. Uh, basically, uh, Bomber Command, at Arthur Harris's direction, uh, launched a fire raid against the archives in Potsdam. Hmm. Uh, and so a lot of records were destroyed. Now, uh, the Russians collected a number of, of records that we thought had been destroyed, and these are available online. Uh, thanks to the efforts of the German Historical Institute, uh, 
uh, working with the um, uh, the Russian archives, hmm. and you can actually access them online. Just Google German documents in Russia, and then it'll take you to the website, which is both in German and Russian. Okay. And then there's a lot of hunting and pecking. You got to look around for what they what they had. There's no real what you'd call index. Uh, but uh, you did come up with, with some interesting things, mm-hmm. and so th- those are those are documents that are still in Russian archives, uh, in uh, in Moscow or in the Russian military archive in Podolsk. Mm-hmm. But they're German documents, so that was one thing. Imperial Germany had several different military establishments. There was the Prussian uh, military establishment, which had its separate war ministry, of course. And which also was served as the imperial uh, war ministry for the for the German Empire. Mm-hmm. Bavaria and Württemberg also had separate war ministries and military establishments, uh, which kind of folded in under the imperial uh, auspices when the when the balloon went up. Mm-hmm. The Bavarian records survived. And so if you if you have a, an organization, an operation where Bavarian units are involved, mm-hmm. the Bavarian archive in Munich, which does have an excellent online finding aid, those records are there. They're in Munich. Mm-hmm. And so they, they can provide a lot of detail, uh, including, uh, you know, like uh, uh, higher, higher unit orders, that kind of thing. Which would have been the, the, the original, the German copies of which for the for the Imperial German archive would have been lost. Mm-hmm. Likewise, uh, Württemberg, Baden-Württemberg, uh, our, the Landes Archive uh, also has an excellent online finding aid. And so, if you have a a Württemberg or, or Badenese uh, unit uh, that was involved in the operation, you could find those records. And I, I did business with them for the Serbia book uh, by mail. Uh, they were very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I looked up, um, I think, the records of the uh, of the papers of uh, of the division commander of the 26th Infantry Division. I said, okay. I, I wrote them an email in English, and I said, this is what you know. Uh, the archive says you have. Uh, this is what the, the, your finding aid says you have. Could you give me a little more detail? And they they, they wrote back to me and said, yeah, it uh, uh, this is what it contains, and it comes to about you know forty three pages, and for X number of euros, we will we will xerox that and send it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. It was that simple. So you know, let's make let's make some let's make some medicine, <laughs> as John Wayne would say in True Grit. <laughs> um, and so, and then the main uh, German archive is, of course, the military, the federal military archive in Freiburg. Uh, and they also have, uh, they have digitized some of their records. Uh, you, again, you have to hunt around. The, the website is very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and so that's where you would go. And then Potsdam is really good because for World War I, because so many records were destroyed, uh, you have to go to regimental histories. Every regiment had a had a history, okay. written, uh, including some by some fairly prestigious, you know, German military historians, you know, Gerhard Ritter, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so, uh, Potsdam has the full collection of regimental histories. You can get some in this country, usually like the Guards Regiment histories, 
uh, that kind of thing. These really thick, thick tomes mm-hmm. uh, you can find in this country. I know 42nd Street, the New York Public Library has a has a number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but Potsdam has like the full the full collection. I'm speaking with Richard DiNardo, author of Turning Points. You can find more of his books by Googling his name or looking for his books on Amazon. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Twitter and Facebook at warscholar, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business technology and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Were you able to uh, visit any of the um, World War I sites that you write about in the book? Uh, regrettably not. Uh, there is a um, uh, there is actually a a, a a tour company which which actually uh, did tours of uh, World War One Eastern Front battlefields, mm-hmm. but uh, it's frightfully expensive. Ah, okay. So, what part of this research was most enjoyable for you? Oh God, uh, um, coming up with all kinds of interesting interesting little items. And, of course, the letters of, of people, especially corps commanders, a guy like Robert Koch, mm-hmm. you know, who was, like, writing his wife, like, every every other day. Mm-hmm. And his letters were all typed up in the in the archives in Freiburg very, very nicely. And uh, so he's, he's a good he's a good informant. And then you have have really kind of amusing things, for example, when the Russians captured Shermissel in March of 1915. Mm-hmm. They captured a, a lot of guns, you know, uh, that you know, had were part of the, the fortress's equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these being Austrian, and so when Schermissel was recaptured by Mackensen's 11th Army in, uh, in in at the end of May 1915, mm-hmm. it was occupied by the 11th Bavarian Division. So they capture these guns, and they're sending them back to Munich as, like, war trophies. And, of course, the Austrians are screwing their heads into this thing, saying, wait a minute, that's our property. <laughs> and so, and so, the, uh, so the, the German liaison officer at AOK, August von Cremon, is writing to Falkenhayn, asking him to, to ask Mackensen, uh, can you get the Bavarians to, like, you know, give, the, give the stuff back to the Back to the Austrians. Wow! But I, I never, I never did find out how that how that whole issue was resolved. It was very, very interesting. Hmm. What What did you find that most surprised you as you did the research? Ooh, that's a good question. That most surprised me. Well, on on the Russian side, it's, it's very interesting. It, it, it's worth noting that that after the Tsar dis, you know decides to relieve Grand Duke Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, send them off to the Caucasus. Interestingly enough, the Tsar's Stavka worked a little bit better than the Grand Duke's Stavka did. Hmm. In a sense, it was much better equipped with communications equipment, that kind of thing, uh, and and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, and so in, in that regard, now the only trouble was that the Tsar himself was not exactly a model of military decisiveness. Uh, so he, he really, uh, so, so that the, the single point of failure was the chief of staff, Alexiev, mm-hmm. uh, who was, uh, there. And also, it was also kind of interesting on the German side to see how, uh, a couple of things. Number one, again, this is very interesting. Uh, the use of, of military attaches for intelligence purposes mm-hmm. uh, is is an interesting story that still has to be has to be written. I think that's uh, uh, that's one thing. Another was uh, it, it was very interesting. Uh, another interesting aspect to look at is uh, if you look at who Adolf Hitler's field, you know uh, uh, principal operational level commanders were. Mm-hmm. In other words, the armed group commanders and some of the army commanders, for example, Rundstedt, Bach, uh, Wilhelm Rudolf von Lee, they all have one thing in common. They all spent extensive time on the Eastern Front hmm. in World War I. Mm-hmm. So they were accustomed to, to mobile warfare. Ah, I see. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, again, again, you got to it's interesting to, to look at what happens to these people. Subsequently, Bach had been Mockinson's operations officer mm-hmm. at his headquarters for, for, for the 1915 campaigns. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lieb had been the, uh, uh, he was the chief of staff, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, uh, for the Bavarian 11th Division commander, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Ritter von Knoisel. And Rundstedt had, had spent time on the Eastern Front and was on the staff of the uh, of the Governor General of Warsaw, mm-hmm. Hans Hartwig von Basler, um, which was uh, again it's very interesting. And then um, you'll also kind of get an appreciation for how people communicate. Yeah, for for example, Conrad is a man of the 19th century. If he's going to discuss a major decision regarding a, a uh, you know, let's say, coalition warfare, he wants a personal meeting. Mm-hmm. And then, and then after that, the next day he'll write a memo, a lengthy memo, in this kind of you know florid, you know, nineteenth-century style, uh, which will often uh, come to conclusions that were precisely the opposite of what had been agreed to at the meeting. Uh, Falkenhayn had a lot of tra- had a lot more traveling to do because he had to divide his time between by late 1915 he had to divide his time between the Eastern Front, the Western Front, and and Serbia. So uh, he regards personal meetings as as you know these time consuming things that he would like to avoid. So he preferred to use telephone. Okay. And and that was another thing that that that's, that that was surprising is that. Uh, particularly in the case of of Mockinson, uh, how much of the business of his headquarters really ran on telephone? And so, basically, there was one officer in his headquarters, and, and certainly for I was I was able to document this for the Serbian campaign book, a Captain Dunst, uh, who spent most of his day on the telephone, mm-hmm. basically receiving in, you know, receiving reports and issuing orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and written ones could be filled out you know, and, and, and sent later, but a lot of the business was done by telephone. And, in fact, if you read German regimental histories carefully, mm-hmm. 
for example, the crossing of the Danube, the crossing of the Seine, that kind of thing, uh, the regimental history will mention the name of the private uh, often who, who brings the telephone line across. Oh, really? Huh. And if you look at the surviving German you know, orders at, at, at core and division level, uh, the end of it uh, will say, you know, telephonic contact with higher headquarters to be established by, hmm. and it gives a, a date and a time. Hmm. Interesting. That's... And in fact, the uh, what Francois, the commander of the um, of the 41st Reserve Corps, did mm -hmm. uh, before the Gorlitz operation, even though he's on Austro-Hungarian territory, basically. Uh, any civilian found near a German telephone line was subject to an immediate death sentence. Hmm. Wow. Which was one way of securing one's communications. But, yeah. yeah. Was there a particular, and I know there are a lot of things you can't answer when you're doing this research because there are gaps in the record, but was there a particular question that you had a lot of difficulty getting to conclusion on and finally did, or perhaps you really researched it and didn't get an answer and, and still would like one? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'd like a little bit more of is the details of the of the Posen Conference uh, on 2 July uh, 1915, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, basically uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff walk into a, a bureaucratic ambush, brilliantly engineered by Falkenhayn, mm -hmm. uh, concerning uh, the you know how Russian Poland was going to be taken. Hindenburg and Ludendorff, more Ludendorff than Hindenburg, wanted uh, a much wider envelopment uh, with the Pincers meeting at Minsk mm -hmm. and Falkenhayn and, and I think probably Mackensen as well uh, regarded this as, as logistically simply not feasible, and they were right. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, the, the precise details of how the meeting went, in other words, who said what, uh, is uh, we, we don't have a, if you will, kind of a stenographic record like we do with, let's say, like the Von Zay conference. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, the infamous Von Zay conference. Uh, we don't have any kind of written record of, of that, which would have been kind of fun to, to read because, you know, we, we do have a, 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 an extensive file for the late summer and early fall of, of correspondence between. Uh, Oberost, which was Hindenburg and Ludendorff's headquarters, the, the supreme command in the east, mm -hmm. and OHL, and you can see kind of like the, the snarkiness coming through uh, between Falkenhayn and, and Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Hmm. Okay. So I know that um, historical research doesn't necessarily lend itself to uh, emotional impacts or feelings, but was there anything that you came across that had either a very negative or very positive emotional um, impact on you. It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, you see, for example, people. Uh, there was one interesting, interesting thing which was uh, which I saw, which was also captured in the photograph, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, uh, Robert Koch, the commander of the of the, before he commanded Tenth Corps, mm -hmm. uh, he was commanding the uh, uh, the. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 10th Reserve Corps. Before he was 10th Reserve Corps, he was commander of the 1st Corps, mm -hmm. German 1st Corps, at the Battle of the Missourian Lakes. And he he recounts uh, in a letter to his wife how he met three survivors of the battle, two Russian prisoners 
and one German reservist. They were all roughly like 14 or 15 years old. Oh, wow. And he, and he had a picture taken with them mm-hmm. right outside his core headquarters. And I've seen the photo. Hmm. It's in his papers. Uh, and it's, it's basically it's him standing with the German in the center and the two Russians on the side. And then the... Um, uh, and then, oddly enough, uh, it looks like a, like an aide of his is kind of poking his head through the doorway, kind of almost like photobombing the shot. Hmm. Uh, but it, it was it's a very very peculiar photograph. Uh, there's also another there's also another fun one uh, which which shows you how how people can act. You know, even German German generals have kind of wacky senses of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a picture of the advance in, in Galicia, kind of in the late summer. Uh, and Kosh, now commanding the 10th Reserve Corps, is is involved in this. Uh, and uh, uh, they're on the, the estate of some of some nobleman. And it's, it's a picture of him and his staff with a captured Russian officer who was a was a Cossack. And basically, Kosh and his chief of staff, they've wheeled out this giant stuffed bear. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, it's on on its hind legs, and they're linking arms with the bear. Okay, <laughs> I mean it, it's it's a it's a very very strange photo, uh, and and you know it, it's very it's very nice of like like reading Kosh's letters to his wife and you know so on. Mm-hmm. It's it, similar to reading, let's say, an American Civil War mm-hmm. um, soldiers' letters home, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of that. Has anyone done extensive research on his letters and written on it, or is your work? As far as I know, uh, Akash, Akash, there is no biographer of Robert Kosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually do have uh, several corps commanders who did have like extensive uh, diaries, memoirs, uh, letters. Kosh would be one. Mm-hmm. Carl Litzman, uh, who plays an important role in Second Missourian Lakes, uh, and in the fall campaign in 1915, in Poland would be another one. Uh, so there, there is some good biographical work to be done mm-hmm. there as well. And uh, another thing that I, I, I've tried to clear up is this, and I've been on this now for, for several books, I have an article coming out next year in War and History mm-hmm. on this, is the relationship between between commanders and chiefs of staff in the German army? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, uh, I think, very carelessly kind of extrapolate from the relationship between Hindenburg and Ludendorff, uh, and sort of impose that on the rest of the German army to, to suppose that the commanders were all just frontmen for their chiefs of staff who did all their thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Zeke was a, a, a very able chief of staff, but, you know, let's, let's, you know, I mean, you know, essentially working at, working at Quantico for, uh, for the past 22 years, uh, I've gotten a chance to work for a number of generals in, in various capacities at times. Mm-hmm. We, we don't give colonels lobotomies when we make them generals. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And these guys are smart. Uh, Mockinson himself, for all of his, his weird appearance, because he, he liked, uh, he enjoyed, uh, he was an ardent cavalryman, and his his initial unit, the one that really held his heart, was, was the Second Life Hussars, mm-hmm. uh, which was always famous for, for its distinctive uh, uh, Hussars busby, for a big fur busby with the death head. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and he, it was a uniform he liked to wear. Uh, that, that was the uniform he regularly wore and that the regulations kind of allowed him to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, with his big handlebar mustache and his deep-set eyes, uh, it does give him uh, the appearance of something from an earlier age. Mm-hmm. And he himself was described, he was a very popular man in Germany, he was described as kind of like the reincarnation of Marshall Blucher. Well, that's a little unfair. Uh, uh, to, to Mockinson, you know, Blucher was a, a very inspiring commander, very fiery, that kind of thing. He was also a certified loon. Mm. Uh, I mean, he thought the world was flat. Uh, mm. He thought all kinds of weird things. Mm. Uh, Mockinson's a thoroughgoing professional uh, who had done a turn on the general staff. And uh, uh, Zeke acknowledges uh, uh, that in a letter to his wife that... Uh, Mockinson had very few uh, what he he called vanities. Mm -hmm. In other words, these kind of personal idiosyncrasies that had to be indulged. And and he also described as a man of of very wide intelligence, both of a theoretical and practical nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Likewise, you have people like Max von Gorlitz, trying to Otto von Balo. Again, these are these are Eastern Front commanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are not the, the playthings of their chiefs of staff, for God's sake. It's about time we, we kind of ditch this notion. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So what do you hope, so apart from being um, a history of, of the Eastern Front in 1915 and filling any historical gaps, um, wh- what else do you hope the book will do? Sell well. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> No, I mean it's it's uh, it, it it kind of builds on on what I've been doing before, and you know mm-hmm. hopefully people will like it and read it, mm-hmm. and uh, it it sort of uh, led me into what I'm working on currently, which will be the next book, mm-hmm. uh, which will be due in 2024. Okay, uh, at least the is due in 2024, and that's uh, in. Uh, Back in 2005, I produced uh, Germany and the Axis Powers, which is a study of Germany and coalition warfare in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. The next book is going to be the prequel to that, mm-hmm. uh, called Germany and the Central Powers. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully, for example, we don't have uh, in English, for example, a really good full-length treatment of things like, for example, the German military mission to Ottoman Turkey. Mm-hmm. There was one book, I think, by Azar Gad, but that, that was that that's still in German back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Sean McMeekin touches a little bit on it in in his uh, Berlin to Baghdad book, mm-hmm. but there really isn't. Uh, and, and and we do have a, a fair amount of source material for that in the in the form of uh, the the memoirs of people like Lehman von Zanders. Mm-hmm. Several other officers wrote. Uh, memoirs or, or, or essays and, you know, on this. And uh, we also have uh, some good stuff coming out on the Turks now in English, mm-hmm. thanks to the efforts of my old friend and colleague, uh, Ed Erickson, mm-hmm. okay. uh, who has done a lot of interesting stuff on the Turkish army, mm-hmm. um, including a lot of archival research. So German efforts in the Eastern Front, how much were they affected, and let's stick to 1915, how much were they affected by what was going on the Western Front or on other fronts 
Oh, it, 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 there's quite a bit. Uh, uh, there's a lot of interplay between the fronts, which is why also 1915 is very interesting. If you look at uh, the problems that a guy like Falkenhayn has to deal with, they're a lot more complex, I would argue, than, let's say, what the what the Allies are dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, every time there's an attack on the, on the Western Front, um, you know, there are concerns about, well, do we have to pull forces back from the east? Uh, are things quite enough I can thin forces out? So, for example, once they created the strategic reserve of, uh, of about uh, 14 divisions, mm-hmm. Falkenhayn committed uh, the bulk of, uh, that allowed Falkenhayn to build up a force of eight divisions for the Korolitsa offensive. Mm-hmm. And most of those were drawn from the Western Front. Hmm. And that's very interesting, too, because then what you have to do is you have to retrain those troops for mobile warfare. Uh, give them a different mindset. Yeah, different... E- exactly. And then, likewise, uh, for the invasion of Serbia, once the military convention is signed, uh, the convention says that uh, that Germany is going to provide X number of divisions, Austria-Hungary is going to provide X number of divisions, and then Bulgaria is going to provide X number of divisions, and Germany and Austria-Hungary would attack within 30 days of the signing of the, of the convention. Bulgaria would attack within 35 days. And, and of course, uh, those troops got to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is Austria says, well, owing to events on the Eastern Front, namely the Black-Yellow Offensive, uh, which I, I discuss a little bit in the, in the late summer, and early fall of the, of the of the campaign is is eating up so much resources. Con- Conrad has to write Falkland that uh, we really can't provide the uh, the number of troops we kind of promised in the in, you know according to the convention. And so Falkenhayn, through gritted teeth, says, you know, okay, we'll make up the difference. So and again, you got to pry troops from over Austin. And there were times when when Falkenhayn would you know would ask for you know for forces from from Hindenburg, mm-hmm. and Hindenburg was perfectly happy to tell him to get, get stuffed, you know, and so it was very difficult to pry troops out from commanders who wanted to hang on to them in the, in the worst possible way. So there's a lot of complexity that that goes on, and that also meant that operations had to be uh, of relatively short duration. So, for example, again, I think Serbia provides a good one here. Uh, you know, weather is causing delays, and OHL is really fretting about all uh, all this sort of thing. And then where commanders position themselves mm-hmm. is interesting, too, because uh, Falkenhayn uh, divides time between uh, uh, Metzieres, which is, which is where OHL is for the Western Front, mm-hmm. Pless, which is about an hour's drive from Teschen, which is the site of Austrian high, uh, the Austro-Hungarian High Command headquarters, mm-hmm. and then further, uh, and then uh, also uh, occasionally going down into Hungary for close obser- observation of of the invasion of Serbia, mm-hmm. uh, operation against Serbia once that was underway, and of course all that you know you, you think about how much how much train travel Falkenhayn has to has to do it, it's got to be you know pretty exhausting. Mm-hmm. So just stepping back to the example that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, it's always interesting, you know, you look at a battle and the outcome and you try to figure out what happened, but then when you step back and you realize that, you know, the 
the personnel and material in place was decided by, you know, a few men writing a document and signing it, you know, which, mm -hmm. you know, the orders to move this here and there, you know, you forget it's just a few guys pushing paper yeah, well, around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a few people who have to make critical decisions, and then, you know, uh, and obviously, uh, uh, knowing that, obviously, you know, lives are, are going to be lost, and that was something that, that World War One commanders kind of took for granted is, as a French general, Charles Mangin put it, if you attack, you're going to lose a lot of men. If you defend, you're going to lose a lot of men. If you move, you're going to lose a lot of men. So no matter what we do, we're going to lose a lot of men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. That's the that's the reality that uh, that you have to uh, uh, that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, although, again, another another bogus notion too is this whole business about chateau generalship and so on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is kind of foolish. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there were. Was it seventy-three British generals were killed in World War One? Seventy-one German generals were killed, mm -hmm. including one who was uh, done in by a lance mm -hmm. oh, wow. in a cavalry skirmish by a Cossack. Wow! And uh, like fifty-four French generals. Yeah. So and they... the Russians had a number of their commanders killed or captured. Yeah, they were out there fighting. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting? You mentioned the word count. The limit. Um, did he have any other difficulties getting the book finished or published? No, no. I was I was already under contract with uh, with ABC uh, with uh, with Prager, mm -hmm. which is a uh, an imprint of ABC Clio. Okay. I had worked with them before. They like what I do. They gave me kind of carte blanche, mm -hmm. and I usually uh, I pride myself on getting my stuff in uh, on time or early. Mm -hmm. uh, the the biggest problems are always. Uh, doing stuff like uh, you know, getting maps, photos. Photos are not bad. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there, there are some good sources out there. Uh, for example, the Library of Congress has a collection of photos from a defunct news service, mm -hmm. uh, the Bain Collection. Mm -hmm. And so there's no copyright. Mm -hmm. right. And you can literally download the photos off the Internet. Very easy. Maps is always a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I, the maps I got for this book were out of the German official history. Again, it's over 70 years old. Mm -hmm. So there's no copyright issue, but sometimes they don't, they don't reproduce as precisely as, as a publisher would like. Right. You know, and, and so on. And so that, that's always a, uh, a problem. And I, uh, I also, uh, the other biggest, Issue is, of course, the uh, uh, doing the index. I do my own index. Oh, okay, and that's uh, I'm sure that's time consuming. Yeah, I mean it's it, uh, well. I mean, I I could pay someone to do it, but a I'm kind of cheap, <laughs> uh, and b um, it's one of the most important parts of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, so for anyone who I mean, when I use a book to do research, the first thing I do is I I'll look at the index. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you know, a, a, a detailed index is is worth its weight in platinum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so therefore, I always make it a make it an effort to uh, uh, to do that sort of thing, and therefore I I, I do the index myself. And it is very time consuming to be sure. Mm -hmm. But as you say, important. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you on the web? Do you have a web page, social media, anything like that? 
I'm not a, I'm not what you would call a big social media person. Uh, I, I'm, I'm relatively easy to track down. I mean, I'm a member of the Society of Military, for Military History. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, uh, and I'm, you know, relatively easy to, to find. But uh, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I have, I, I'm on Facebook about maybe once a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't tweet. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I think at times Twitter makes people stupid, but mm-hmm. this is you know neither here nor there. So this people, is me. So people could just Google your name if they wanted to find out what uh, what you're working on and that sort of thing. Yeah, or what I've done, or they can Amazon me. Okay, okay. Because all my books are on Amazon. Okay, good, good. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I mean it was. It, it's fun to write. I, I uh, it was fun to write. It, on average, it takes me about five years to do a book. Hmm. Wow! Uh, and although between the the Serbia book and this one, I also worked on a on a very extensive military history, institutional history of the of the of the Imperial German Army, mm-hmm. uh, with a friend of mine, Dan Hughes, called Imperial Germany and War, mm-hmm. which I would urge people to uh, to have a look at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But uh, writing writing is always writing is always enjoyable, and researching is is always enjoyable. Uh, I I go to I, I like traveling to Germany when I you know when I can mm-hmm. uh, to do research. I have a number of friends over there, that kind of thing, and so mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting book. Some cool stuff in there. Cool, cool personalities and all kinds of little tidbits. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, the, the personalities are what makes it are, are what makes it so enjoyable. I mean, uh, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for speaking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title "Military History Inside Out." That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.